Davis, and you're on Divorce and Family Law Talk radio show. The, the effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions, we've got answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, and much more. Today is August 31st, 2016, and we're broadcasting live from Arcadia, California at our main office. Tonight, our special host with me is the co-host of the show is Daniel Knowlton, Attorney Daniel Knowlton. Dan, how are you this evening? Very good, Vince. How are you, sir? Doing fine. Last week we were talking about, um, we, got, we, we, were, we were mentioning that we wanted to talk about property. And I something happened during this week, and um, there's a question I want to put before you um, because you're the property expert. So these are the facts. Husband and wife are married. They've been married for eight years. Before they were married, husband had purchased the house. But since marriage, the couple has been living together in house and the husband and the wife's funds, community funds, have been used used for um, paying off the mortgage, doing the repairs, the upkeep. You with me so far? I am. Okay. And about two about two years ago, about two years ago, the husband wanted to refi the house. So he refied the house, and he had the mother sign a deed, a grant deed, giving up all her rights and interest in the property. That happened two years ago. Fast forward to today, uh, wife is filing for divorce because there has been problems in their marriage. Question. Does the wife still own a pro rata share in the property, or does that deed where she's relinquished all of her rights control? Well, that's an interesting question. That depends on the validity of the of what would be called a transmutation. Um, to begin with, wives would normally have in that situation a rights that are called, as you are well aware, more Marsden rights. And those more Marsden rights would be that she owns half of the principal reduction in the um, monthly payments at a minimum, plus an, a proportionate portion of the appreciation, if any, in the house that is uh, the ratio of the uh, principal reduction versus the purchase price um, equity of the house. So she would have those half of the principal reduction plus a portion of the appreciation. So um, when two years ago she signs a grant deed to give that up or to give up any interest in the house, that's the one identifiable thing that she seems to be giving up. So then the question is, is there a valid transmutation? And um, under Family Code Section 850, 
a transmutation has to be a, a written, express uh, transfer that recognizes the uh, the property and uh, the character and the property that she's giving up. So that is the question about whether the grant deed she signed is valid or not. That's a that's a principal question we'd have. And and my guess, uh, there is a case that says that uh, a grant deed itself, that kind of an instrument, can constitute the the writing, and can constitute the sufficient. Um, expression of the intent to give up that uh, character or that property. Uh, there are cases that hold deeds are as opposed to, say, car titles, which are not. <clears throat> um, so she probably has given up that property interest up until two years ago. Now, um, after two years, um, she she probably does have, nonetheless, a property interest, I would think, after that two-year period, that is, in the last two years, despite that grant deed, she probably still does have some uh, interest in that property if he's continued to pay community property into it, um, because there she is still paying, or he is still using community property to pay his separate property. So I think that she would still have some interest, but it would be limited. On the face of it, it looks to me like she's probably given it up for the, before the two years, but she may not have since for the last two years. How do you feel about is there any Is there any presumption of that transmutation may have been um, oh. coerced or? Oh, yes, there is a presumption. Especially since there uh, Yes, I think it's. Uh, Family Code 760, I think, is the, is the statute that creates a statutory presumption that undue influence has been exercised against the person uh, who is giving up that interest. So uh, she could raise that as a defense when he asserts the validity of the grant deed. She can say that, well, uh, this presumption is in my benefit, so for you to uh, um, assert the validity, to prove the validity of the grant deed, you have the burden of proving that it was done in good faith and for valuable consideration, that it was, uh, uh, and, and I was not unfairly taken advantage of. I did not, that you did not gain an unfair advantage from that transaction. Now, what do you think about the fact that that was undue influence because she made that transmutation? or agree to that transmutation without any consideration? I think that's a good argument. Um, I, I, she probably did not know what she was giving up. Um, she, we could go into the, the bona fides of her um, of the transaction and what knowledge she had about what she was doing and the background of it. Uh, there is a case that has gone into that very type of analysis, I think, in that one case. Um, there was an assertion that she didn't that her language skills uh, were not as good as um, as uh, they they should have been. Uh, so there are cases that have gone that way, saying that the, there has been uh, undue influence exercised in giving and signing grant deeds for refis and that kind of thing. Okay, very good. She had, uh, the client that had brought that situation to me, uh, had met with two other family law lawyers, 
and both of those lawyers said that she had no interest in the property and, uh, you know, that it wasn't an issue. And I thought, well, wait a minute, there's the two years after the transmutation, plus, you know, maybe the transmutation was a result of undue influence. And she actually gave me um, some facts that would support the position that it was undue okay. influence. Nam yeah. Namely, yeah. she was asked to sign the deed without any explanation, and uh, she didn't really know what she was signing until, you know, um, several months later. Well, I think that is an important consideration, you know, what her experience is in real estate transactions. A lot of people don't know what grant deeds are. I think deed is a common um, word in English, but some people don't know the difference between a grant deed and a trust deed. Um, in fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, lawyers who are not experienced in real estate don't really know much about the difference of those two instruments. And uh, it, it's quite believable that a, a layperson may not be very savvy about a grant deed. Um, you know, she might might know what a quit claim is, for example, but not a grant deed. Not that that would make a difference right. here, but, <clears throat> you know, they could go into the uh, business experience, et cetera, that she has had. Very good, very those, good. Okay, yeah, well, those, I want to... Those are very common, common dilemmas and common questions in this age of refinancing. You know, when properties have been going up, a lot of people have been doing refinancings, and uh, and brokers and lenders have been uh, asking that the spouse, the other spouse, go on uh, title as well, you know, to to add uh, to to lower the interest rate, for example, to add to the credit rating, and because of that, we do have a lot of dilemmas where um, people have have now have both names on properties and are in positions of not knowing exactly what the uh, the, the divorce interests would be. Um, so, good question. Okay, well, let's, Dan, Daniel, let's go into our uh, weekly list of questions that we receive from uh, callers via email. And the first question is, who can make special education decisions for my child? And I'm going to have to assume that the parents are, you know, are separated or divorced. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I'm not a special education attorney. There are people who uh, work um, for and against the school districts. I put it that way because there are attorneys who represent uh, students in special education situations who are asserting special education rights and um, uh, individual earning, uh, uh, sorry, learning plans, that kind of thing. Uh, they monitor that. But uh, there is a, a lot of information from the family law perspective on this, too. Um, first of all, uh, either, parent, either parent can make special education decisions, in my opinion, if, if there is no custody um, order, no child custody determination that's been made by a court. And um, in, a very, in, in most divorce situations, for example, the parents will have a custody order after the first RFO, request for order hearing, and the standard custody order will say something like that um, the parents have joint legal custody and one parent or the other might have primary physical custody. So, And sometimes primary physical custody is called 
other things that make it more palatable so it doesn't hurt people's feelings so much, like primary residence, um, that kind of thing. <clears throat> now, the, the distinction between joint physical or, and uh, joint uh, legal is that the legal custody legal custody deals with health, health education and welfare decisions that a parent might make. So the normal rule is that uh, if you have joint legal custody, either parent can still make health education welfare decisions, but if the court is asked to designate a certain issue, uh, which is a sensitive issue that one of the parents has brought up to the court, uh, the court can order that that decision has to be made um, unanimously by the two parents. And, and the court can, if requested, also specify that in the event of uh, that being breached, if it's not followed by one of the parents, that there will be consequences, and the court can set forth what those consequences will be. Now, for example, um, there have been cases of things like um, that the, the child's hair will not be cut in a mohawk or um, something that one parent might like, but the other parent finds terrible. And so those things have called out to the court. The court can require that both parents have to make that decision. I think special education decisions, when you have a special education child, um, in, in that circumstances, I expect that one of the parents will bring that up, to bring up the issue of who gets to make the decisions about that, and, um, or that they have to be made jointly and the court can require that they be made jointly. Um, and of course, it could be in subparts too. You know, certain types of of uh, decisions, like the the child's day-to-day -day schooling, the child's uh, daycare, um, uh, the care for the child after daycare or before school, and or uh, who the uh, the doctors will be or the physical therapists will be, all those kinds of decisions could be, and in a sensitive situation should be, made joint physical custody decisions by the judge requiring joint action. And there are cases, naturally, where um, if one parent is, uh, if the court has determined that one parent does not have the judgment, say that they're, uh, they're having um, addiction problems, that that parent could be excluded from the decisions. I've seen the courts say that uh, one specific parent gets to make the decisions about education or um, um, discipline or that kind of thing, some special uh, item. Uh, Vince, uh, do you have uh, views on that? You know, I look at it from a legal custody uh, analysis, and if they share joint custody, joint legal custody, I think that they both are going to have to make the decisions, and if one of them makes a decision that the other one is not in agreement with, then they'll have to uh, seek court intervention. So I just look at it yes. as a plain legal custody argument or issue. Right, and uh, and and of course the way that that intervention would be is if one parent is feels aggrieved by something they anticipate is going to happen or something that's happened in the past, then they would file 
a motion with the court, which used to be called orders to show cause and now are called requests for orders or RFOs. And that's just asking the court to make a, a temporary decision about something that uh, is impinging on the on the couple or the child. Right. Well, going to our next question, I guess we're getting these questions from the listeners because school has started. So we have a bunch of school-related questions today. The second question is, how do legal and physical custody impact decision-making in school? What do you think? Well, um, again, on legal custody, that question is health, education, and welfare decisions. So we are expressly uh, in education uh, decisions for legal custody decisions. So, um, um, the, for example, private school or some special programs that the child might attend, those kinds of things would be determined by who has legal custody. And again, if it's uh, joint legal, that means that either parent can act, but if the other parent is aggrieved by it, they can ask the court to overturn it. And if they have been, that issue has been specially designated, it would require joint a, a joint um, decision, a uh, unanimous decision by the two parents. Now, the, where this gets interesting, of course, is when we start talking physical custody impact on the schools. <clears throat> um, physical custody is basically where the child is going to be living, the parent who has the decision and the power to determine where the child is going to be living. And naturally, that means usually with the parent who has physical custody. So the, uh, the impact that physical custody is going to have on the school is where that parent's living, that's the district that that child would normally be going to school. Uh, and that is, um, in many cases of custody cases, that is the big argument that the parents have is where is that child going to go to school? Because once a child is set in school, it's very hard to, to convince a court or to convince oneself sometimes that the child is the best interest of the child is to change that school. We like to see a consistency in where the child, uh, a consistency in the child's life, and a consistency in where the child has gone to school. Uh, you can imagine, thinking over your own background, um, the importance of seeing your classmates from year to year and fitting into the classmates' social order. Uh, certainly through elementary school, and as you get older, that becomes a little less important. But growing up with your friends, having the consistency of, of seeing those teachers around the area, and um, the child having uh, the stability of, uh, of knowing all that from year to year. So uh, that's the big way it impacts. Well, I would agree with you. I would definitely agree with you. Now, I sometimes. Think, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, um, sometimes when we are doing custody, and I've done and do a lot of custody cases, sometimes when the parents are uh, just starting a child at school, or um, you know, like in kindergarten or even preschool, sometimes the big issue that they'll face legally concerning custody is the school that child's going to go to because of that stability argument that I was just 
referring to, that stability um, being paramount for the well-being of the child. So if you have parents who are living in different areas of the city or county or even the country, then that can be a big fight about uh, where the where the child is going to start school because once they've started in that school, boy, it's difficult sometimes to change it unless something significant has happened <clears throat> mandating that, that change. So there's a lot of uh, posturing and um, um, positioning that parents sometimes take and their lawyers take with regard to where that child is going to start school. Sometimes, uh, you know, the courts will be asked to make a decision even before the child starts school about where the child will be. Now, our next question, Dan, is <clears throat> what happens when a parent has sole legal custody? Well, um, <clears throat> they get to make all the decisions about health, education, and welfare. And that's pretty much it. Um, the courts normally don't award sole legal custody, uh, in my experience, um, unless there are serious reasons for that. And I can name you some of them. And one would be addiction, if a parent is addicted or alcoholic. Um, uh, that can be one reason to give sole legal custody to the innocent parent or to the non-offending or non-addicted parent. Um, <clears throat> that's a great reason. And you also see that in cases where there's uh, serious violence or continuing violence between the parents, um, where there's a threat to the child, perhaps um, um, abuse of various kinds that would endanger the child. Uh, you know, that would be a situation where a, a parent, where the innocent parent uh, might be given sole legal custody, the ability to make all those decisions, including, you know, the religion of the child, uh, um, uh, what doctor the child will see, the dentist the child will see, whether the child needs psychological counseling. Uh, all those decisions could be relegated to that innocent parent and commonly are, uh, you know, in situations where where uh, you might consider monitored visitation or um, or um, institutionally monitored visitation. Those kinds of situations are, um, often come with a sole legal custody, but not necessarily. They, they can be different. Very good, very good. Um, our next question is, what happens when divorced parents have joint physical custody and live in different school districts? <clears throat> well, um, this is a fairly broad question. Um, the first point is that the parent with the predominant physical custody um, would normally be the parent uh, who would determine the school district that child is in. Now, when I say predominant, you know, we're talking percentages. It could be all over the board on joint physical custody. Um, the, uh, I think a lot of the custody lawyers talk in terms of joint physical custody being anything above, uh, say, 28% of uh, custody, and that's on the low end. 
and it could be higher, you know, up to 50%. Um, <clears throat> if we had a situation where the parents had equal uh, custody, equal physical custody, true 50%, and there are a number of cases like that, uh, joint phys physical custody has been very popular for the last 20 or so years. Um, and in those cases, it could be a standoff about uh, which school district that child would begin in. And I think that's determined basically by just the practicalities of who starts the child where, and sometimes just the happenstance that somebody enrolled the child before the other one did, and uh, perhaps uh, there's an enrollment deadline for the child. So those things have to be paid attention to. And in cases where there has been a contest about which district the child will go to school in, um, you know, in a true 50-50 situation, you know, we usually have to get the court involved there to make that decision because we don't want the, the parents so angry with each other that it starts affecting the child um, adversely, and that can easily happen. It starts that animosity starts spilling over to the child. So that's a, a case where you might want to have a preemptive. Um, uh, judicial determination by an RFO as to which school the child is going to go to, and the court makes that decision based on best interest of the child. Very simple to say, but of course very difficult to apply what is the best interest of the child. And we're talking how close is the school, what are the qualities of the school. Um, I've actually hired an educational expert at one point to give an opinion about which school is better than the other school. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, can uh, can get involved in those very close cases, 50-50 cases. Now, <clears throat> there are so many cases that are not 50-50. There are a lot of cases, very common, to have 30-70. One parent has 70% of the time of the child, the other has 30. And that's very common, uh, just um, more than uh, every other weekend plus a midweek might push you into a, a 30% or a little longer sharing in the summer could push you into a 30% uh, timeshare. And uh, in those cases, um, when you have parents um, that are moving to different school districts, then we have, you know, move away situations. And uh, one of the considerations about move aways is that <clears throat> the Burgess case out of the Supreme Court of California holding that um, if one parent has a sole physical custody, then the parent with sole physical custody gets to make, generally gets to make the decision about um, whether it, whether they uh, have to move away or whether they change the child's residence to where that parent's moving to, unless the other parent can show that that decision is being made just to exclude the parent who's staying put. If you can show that, um, then that can defeat a move away under a Burgess argument. Now, of course, we have a later case in the Supreme Court of California, the La Mouche case, which cites a number of more sensitive issues on making that determination. But I think there there is still a strong tendency to follow that Burgess point of view. The La Mouche factors deal with things like um, the uh, the distance the child's moving to, the ties the child has with each community, the uh, ties the child has with siblings. Um, for example, the Williams and Heath case uh, try to prevent children from being 
um, separated from their brothers and sisters. But uh, also in La there's the court can look into the psychological impact that the move away has on, on the children if they're, say, if they're being moved out of state or, or to a school district that is more distant. Now, when I say more distant, that doesn't necessarily mean out of state. If a, uh, the most famous case, one of the most famous cases, the Burgess case, my recollection is that the parent there only moved 40 miles away. And that um, gave rise to that move-away action, the move-away case uh, that uh, determined a lot of law in that area. So uh, uh, once we have passed the 28%, 30%, 35% type of percentage sharing, then the courts are more loath to just go with the Burgess decision that the parent who has sole physical gets to move. The court then has to look into much more closely into the details of um, whether the best interest of the child um, allows the move or doesn't under the La Mouche case. Vince, that's kind of a long answer. Uh, I'm sure you have things, uh, lights you can shed on. No, I, I, I like that answer. Uh, very detailed, very you know, thoughtful analysis. Um, how would you? Um, how would the parents remedy the situation uh, if they lived in different counties? Let's say I lived in Orange County, and my the mother of my child lived in uh, L.A. County, and we had a true fifty-fifty. I want an Orange County school, and she wants an L.A. County school. What would we have to do? Well, uh, that sounds like a bit of a confrontation, a dilemma um, for the parents. And uh, what then would have to be done, um, assuming this is not a move away, but is just that the parents uh, are living that way and the child's just starting school. Let's make That's the simpler question. But in that situation, I, I think the court really does have to make a decision about where the, that child's going to go to school. Um, in uh, cases like that, the courts don't just say, well, let's compromise and uh, have the child, if it's 50 miles distance, uh, uh, you know, the court is not going to say, well, let's just compromise and have them live 25 miles from each of you. Um, they're not going to do that. They'll have to make that hard decision about which district is in the best interest of the child and look into into the uh, the credentials of the school district, into how, how good the school is and uh, you know, the ties that the child has. Um, some of the things that are very influential, I think, are uh, ties that the child has to um, daycare providers uh, or uh, babysitters, you know, if they have those ties in one of those homes in Orange County, say, then that's likely to weigh strongly with the court because keeping the child in in where the child is succeeding is very important. And um, also uh, where the child's friends are. I, I've seen that be a successful factor in child custody cases, you know, where the, uh, where the, the friends are likely to continue into school so that the child will see those kids uh, when they start school with him or her. Um, that, that would be a good factor. Now, I'm I'm probably missing a few points here, but you know, uh, child custody is almost infinite in its variations. Did uh, 
Did I answer what you were asking, Vince? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. You know, the next question is kind of a, a rehash of an earlier question. Who gives consent when a child receives special education? Well, I, th I think it's back to, to that point about joint custody versus physical, and uh, I, I won't have to get uh, into repeating all that again. But, you know, um, if, if um, there's no contest, the school is going to go with the, the decision of whatever parent presents themselves, in my experience, unless the other parent opposes it. Um, and, of course, you know, if the child has a, um, has a guardianship, then the guardian is the one who would be making that decision as well. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, uh, guardianships can come out of uh, juvenile dependency, uh, I understand, although that is not my area. And uh, they can come out of the probate court as well. So um, a guardian could make that kind of a decision. That would be a normal thing uh, for a guardian to make. Um, and, uh, again, the court could be approached in any of those three courts could be approached. The family law court, if it's a juvenile dependency case, the juvenile court, uh, or the uh, the probate court could be approached about um, um, who gets to make the decision about special education. Okay. The next question is kind of a, a logical follow-up. What happens when parents with joint custody cannot agree about special education? Well, then I think we're um, stuck with court. And, uh, of course, any time before you want to file a court proceeding, you want to try to make an agreement about it. You want to uh, try to um, meet and confer and try to be conciliatory with each other and, and bear in mind that uh, these decisions about special education and about child custody last forever, not just until the child's of age. You know, the parents are still dealing with this child all their lives, seeing each other at the various um, hallmarks of the child's life um, forever. So you don't want to make an enemy gratuitously. You don't want to uh, offend the other parent or alarm the child in these kinds of situations. Um, but when, you know, the quote-unquote surgery has to be done and the court has to be invoked, uh, then we're talking about filing a request for order, an RFO, with the court to present the facts to the court to make that decision. That's what we have the courts for when the parents cannot agree uh, and are just at loggerheads about it. And then they have to present the the uh, precise and detailed and nuanced issues that are faced in that special situation about uh, the child's particular disabilities. Um, and the court makes that decision. Now, I've, I've uh, been involved in some of those cases, and they're some of the more sensitive cases, and they're difficult for the judge. You can see the judge wringing her hands sometimes with those cases. Maybe the child is autistic, and um, we're having to deal with where the care providers are with the child, for the child, um, who is who the child's related to, who has the best disposition for dealing with the child's uh, disabilities. Um, 
all those questions have to be brought up and the court makes that kind of a decision. Okay, Dan. The next question is, when my child is with the other parent, he does not do his homework. What can I do about this? Is there a court order that would help this issue? Well, uh, yes. Um, these, these are difficult, and um, you don't want to use a, a rifle or a shotgun in a situation where a pea shooter is more appropriate. So sometimes a subtle order might make a better um, better result, a better outcome than a more dramatic response. Um, for example, an order that uh, the child be at one home after school uh, for a couple hours uh, for, the, for that parent to assist with the homework might work and, and might give the hint to the other parent. Um, uh, if that parent is the one who's, who's helping best, is best with the child's ability to do that. Um, or you could have that reciprocal. It could be today or every um, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at mom's home uh, and for, th for three hours for homework and other times at dad's home for that purpose. You could do something like that. Um, usually, in my experience, one parent or the other is better, is more inclined toward that kind of, of duty with the child. Um, and and probably uh, the expansion of that parent's time is, is maybe a better uh, way of handling it. Um, in cases where it becomes more aggravated, where one parent is not supporting the education of the child at all, that can be a grounds, one of the grounds to diminish the non-cooperative parent's time with the child in favor of the cooperative parent. Um, under a theory of frequent and continuing contact, uh, <clears throat> or the the the, uh, the parent that's helping with the homework is is a better, more productive parent. Perhaps more time should be with that parent, and you could balance um, more of the school days with that parent, <clears throat> and perhaps less of the weekend time, um, or uh, you know three weekends with the parent who's not doing the homework and one uh, and uh, more of the school time with the parent who is. A lot of variations could be made there. Um, <clears throat> have you seen other situations, Vince, that are more productive with that difficult issue? You know, I've seen um, a lot of these <laughs> situations, and I see judges handle them differently. Some judges use the, um, the nuclear bomb, and some judges, yeah. you know, do something fine-tuned. But I think that if it's, you know, a very big problem, it's something that should be brought to the court's attention. Well, and you now, could make... the court's going to handle it. Yeah. Go you could uh, ask that one parent pay uh, tutoring for the child if that parent isn't helping. That would get the message to the parent, perhaps. Um, I, I, but yeah, it's a very delicate situation. situation. Yeah, it's delicate. 
What were you going to say, Dan? No, I, I, it is. Um, I think it's best handled as just as gently as you can, uh, because sometimes uh, doing custody cases is really a matter of educating parents about how to be good parents. Um, you know, a lot of parents really. I mean, they don't. They didn't get a parenting manual when the child was born, and sometimes a custody case is the first time they get educated by someone about what the norms are in uh, our societal expectations about how a parent is um, should be handling a child, how the courts expect you to uh, behave uh, with your child, and how to care for the child. Not that we're um, teaching child care, but just in the sense that. Custody lawyers often educate clients about what is acceptable in um, the court world and the um, child custody evaluator uh, world. You know, things that are acceptable about how to react to um, to the child. Even something as simple as um, you know thinking of the child as our child instead of my child, our son, not my son. You know, it's a it's a different frame of reference sometimes. Um, well, that's um, and I and of course the age of the child too, and the particular needs of the child. You know, some parents are good with teaching algebra, and some will never know it. Um, so, there we go. <laughs> okay, I am separating from my husband. Is he allowed to pick up the kids from school without my permission? Well, the first point I observe is there is no order from a court here. So the fact that you're living apart from your husband uh, doesn't change anything as far as the rights that each of you have to the children. So this previous to a court order, um, yes, he's allowed to pick up the kids without your permission, and you're allowed to pick them up without his permission. Uh, it's only when there are court orders involved that that becomes an issue. If you are not, sorry, if you are not separated from your husband, you know either of you could pick up the child. So uh, most of the time, the school won't even know that you're separated until it becomes an issue. Now, if you pointed out to the school. My guess is the school, until there's a court order, the school is going to say, well, I'm sorry, but we can't prohibit him from doing anything until there's a court order. So um, if you dead set against him picking up the kids, I think, ma'am, that you'll have to you'll have to get an order from the court about that. Um, so the schools have to have to respect the, the court orders, obviously. But basically. <laughs> If they're separated, no court order, the husband can pick up the children without her permission. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. And I agree. <clears throat> Just once once a, a custody determination is made, however, then it might be entirely different. Then it's a question of who has the rights during that period of time that is specified. Um, and... Uh, and even then, I don't think that that he would be prohibited from it on just a, a normal order about uh, the times, um, and unless he was um, there was an express order of prohibition. Uh, I should refine that a little bit. 
say that the husband has the right um, to have the children every Tuesday and Thursday from after school until dinner time. Not an uncommon order, you know, in addition with uh, every other weekend or something like that. Um, if that were the case, he, of course, would be entitled to pick them up on Tuesday and Thursday. But on Monday, Wednesday, and uh, Friday, um, he normally would not be because that's not his time. It's not his custody time. So um, now the school would not make an issue of it unless mom stepped in and called that to the school's attention. And the school would then ask for a copy of the court order. And once she showed them that, I think they would respect that uh, he's not to pick them up. And if it became an issue, you know, they, the police could be called or something like that, which we always want to avoid unless it's absolutely essential. Okay, hey, we'll you with you there. What if the school denies me a copy of the child's report card? What can I do? <clears throat> well, um, I think that is going to be a, a fairly rare circumstance that the, the school would deny that. Uh, and that would be a situation perhaps where there's sole physical, uh, I'm sorry, sole legal custody. If uh, one parent has sole legal custody, the school might deny any information if the parent who has that sole legal custody asks the school to do it. The school might deny any of the educational information. Um, and in that case, the only way that you could change that, the, the common way, would be to uh, go th through the court to get a, an RFO asking for those rights to be changed so that you could get access to school records, et cetera. Now, normally, if there is joint legal custody, normally uh, an order would be in effect. Uh, I think the standard order is that uh, either parent is entitled to get any school information um, regarding the child. And uh, the usual standard joint legal custody arrangement. And, uh, and, and each parent is to alert the other parent of upcoming events, you know, that they wouldn't have knowledge from, um, from their records, that kind of thing. Would you try with a letter to the other side first before running into court, or would you contact the school? How, what would you advise a client that couldn't get a report card? I'd advise them to try anything short of court first. Um, you know, a phone call to the other party. Uh, if they're not speaking, a letter would be nice. Any kind of communication about that um, in a, a very gentle way uh, to try to get the other side's cooperation with it. And uh, only when you can't get any cooperation would you want to step in to do something officially, uh, just as a matter of courtesy and, and the well-being of the children, um, I think would mandate that kind of, of behavior. Know, trying to be polite about it, um, but the time might come in if if, if uh, one parent is obstructing any information about um, the child's education, and if there's joint legal custody, that's a serious matter. And, uh, and then I think you you after you've tried to meet and confer, I think you do have to step in and do something to remedy that. You know, otherwise you're you're going to be frozen out of the child's decision making. And if you have joint legal, you know, that's not an appropriate thing. 
Okay. Last question from our listeners this week. Do we have to meet with the guidance counselor together? Um, I don't think you do. Um, And uh, I think if if the parents are confrontive with each other, I think the guidance counselor is going to ask is going to recommend the parents meet separately. Um, so uh, I think you'd have to go with how the guidance counselor feels about it, but you should call uh, to the counselor's attention what the relations are between the two parents. Uh, if they're that frosty or if they're, uh, they spark angry outbursts, I think you have to meet separately. And I think the guidance counselor would meet with you. Um, now, I think some of this might be a matter of uh, school, the school politics. Uh, again, I'm not a specialist in special education, um, and I'm not aware of any um, uh, California education codes pertaining that to that. But my guess is that the counselor probably would be open to what you suggest if it's a, a confrontational situation or an angry situation is likely to happen. Uh, then I think they would go along with meeting separately. And, and sharing perhaps what the other parent has said, you know, so you could so they could get a full analysis of both uh, contentions. Very good analysis. So I have a question Thanks. for you, Dan. A client asked me today to tell him what a 730 evaluation is and what a 733 evaluation is when dealing with in terms of custody and and, uh, visitation. Can you tell us about that? Well, a 730 evaluation is uh, basically the court appointing an an evaluator for the child and normally would be a licensed psychologist. And uh, there are um, very regimented rules about uh, how that uh, doctor is is to make reports and um, the analysis that they're to do and um, uh, the uh, standards that they're to use with regard to doing the analysis and, and uh, the purpose of the analysis is to make a recommendation to the court about how custody should go normally although we have a case that says that the court is supposed, any time that it appoints a 730 evaluator, the court is um, required upon the request of a party to specify what the questions are that the 730 evaluator is going to be looking at. So um, if you appoint a 730 evaluator, just in general, I guess the evaluator could go ahead and and do a, a general evaluation about which is the better parent and and make recommendations. But it, it would be a better focus for the court to um, to tell the evaluator what it is we're looking at with regard to the child. Um, is it the child's schools we're concerned about? Uh, is, it the, uh, is it the prospect of moving away that we should be concerned about? Um, those kinds of questions, or is it um, 
is the child uh, to be um, around certain members of the family or um, any more specific things so that the evaluator is not just doing a, a general uh, review of the relationships and psychological conditions of people. Um, and normally, a, a 730 evaluator is going to be doing psychological testing um, consisting of a number of different types of tests, um, like, for example, the MPI uh, test is a very common one, um, determining um, by scientific methods or as close to science as the psychological community feels <clears throat> that um, what the sensitivities of the child and the parents are, what the what the psychological conditions sometimes of the parents and the child are, uh, what what parent um, can cope better with the child. Um, I've heard psychologists say that really what they're looking for is a match. Which parent matches the child's needs best? And of course, those categories of where the match is can be um, many. So you might have better match on certain questions with the mother and certain other things match better with the father. And so once they've done psychological testing of the children and the parents normally in a full evaluation, then that's the job of the psychologist is to figure out where the better match is and to make that recommendation to the court. Um, uh, if if the psychologist is not following the rules under the rules of court, uh, which are quite detailed, the uh, the psychologist's report can be and sometimes is attacked in the court. And there are some new cases that are um, actually throwing out certain psychologists' reports when they found that they violate uh, the the. Uh, the rules of court. So that has been an issue that psychologists have been quite uh, concerned about here in the last five or so years. Is um, and uh, is the possibility that they could have done all this work, go to court, and then find out that the court is throwing out their whole report and not hearing their opinion because they violated some of the rules of the procedure of, of how to do the evaluation. Uh, there is one uh, famous recent case where a psychologist was reported to uh, the board, the psychological board, for discipline because of uh, uh, his, I think in that case, his refusal after objection by counsel and, and by a new counsel who actually was a psychologist too. <clears throat> he refused to um, resign from the case because of alleged misconduct and was later disciplined for that by the psychological board. So this can be very serious. Following the rules that are set forth for these evaluations can be very serious. What was the rule that uh, the psychologist evaluated or violated in that case? Um, you know, I, I'm going from memory, and I, I don't want to um, make it any worse in that case was, but my recollection was that uh, he was not, uh, he was accused of favoritism to one party, and I believe he was accused of having ex parte communications. Now, for our listeners, an ex parte communication would be like 
how it's commonly thought of is, it, is that, a, for example, a judge has to be totally neutral. That's his or her job, is to be totally neutral and decide a case on the merits. And if one party phoned the judge, say the attorney of one party phoned the judge and started arguing with the judge or telling him his opinion, and the other party wasn't present on the phone, or, um, normally that would be an ex-party communication and prohibited, and the judge could actually be um, sanctioned for tolerating that kind of thing in that kind of a circumstance. <clears throat> well, the same with a psychologist who's making a, um, an evaluation. He's not supposed to be having uh, unilateral communications from one party without the other party being uh, copied in on if it's a writing or uh, be on the phone if it's a phone call or be present at the same time with the party if it's in person. And I, I think that this individual was... Uh, was accused of having ex-party communications with one of the parties. <clears throat> and that gave such an appearance of impropriety along with favoritism that um, he was ultimately sanctioned and let off that particular case. And just briefly, we have a few more moments in the show. Tell us about the 733 evaluation. Well, um, I'm I'm not I haven't run across the 733 so I don't know what to say unless that happens to be an evaluation of uh, of child abuse or sexual abuse um, and uh, I'm guessing the that might be the 730 the 733 is generally what the losing side in the 730 exam can ask for in other words you know mother oh. and father went through the 730 Oh, um, now I'm wondering if that's the uh, the prerogative that the court has of hearing from a second psychologist <clears throat> to criticize the first psychologist's report, and that that's exactly what uh, it is. Yeah, okay, and that uh, I have a little familiarity with that, <clears throat> and and um, so a, a party who feels aggrieved by the first report can see a, a psychologist and have that psychologist review what the first psychologist has done, get a second opinion, so to speak. <clears throat> now, uh, I, I can't say whether that requires, I, in fact, I don't think it allows any further testing, but I'm not sure about that. But uh, what is commonly done is that second psychologist simply reviews the report, and I've heard judges speak on this topic, that uh, most of the time what that consists of is going through the rules of court and seeing whether the first psychologist followed the rules of court. Now, the rules of court were arrived at very carefully and specifically with a view to, uh, from very experienced um, custody evaluators, as to what is, is appropriate, an appropriate procedure for doing a, a custody evaluation. So <clears throat> the second psychologist basically just goes through all the requirements that the first custody evaluator was required to do by the rules of court and um, can pick at those as to whether they were followed or, you know, whether uh, reasonable equal access hey, was given. Yes. Dan, we're running out of time. We're going to have to see you next week on the radio. Okay, I'll look forward to it. Thank you very much, Vince.
Thanks. Good night.